Welcome to the podcast for Sunday, July 2nd, 2017. May God use this as a blessing to you today. Let us pray. God, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, for you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So it was when I graduated from high school in 1986 that I first discovered the amazing book, All I Really Needed to Know, I Learned in Kindergarten by Robert Fulgram. How many of you are familiar with this book? It's a fabulous book. It's a collection of first-person essays from about as many topics as you can possibly imagine. Crayons, laundry, spiders, trick-or-treating, jumper cables, hide-and-seek, beetles, dandelions, Mother Teresa, and the Grand National Old-Time Fiddler's Contest. Always held during the third week of June, the Grand National Old-Time Fiddler's Contest is in Weiser, Idaho, population 5,353. Robert Fulgram had the chance to visit over 30 years ago, but it's still going on. In fact, last weekend was when they had the finals of this year's one. Uh, He says that people from all over show up. Fiddlers from Pottsboro, Texas, Sepulpa, Oklahoma, Thief River Falls, Minnesota, Caldwell, Kansas, Three Forks, Montana, and just about every other little crossroads you could possibly imagine, even as far away as Japan, did they come. Now, it used to be that the festival was populated by, you know, country folk. Pretty, straight type, short hair, church on Sunday, women in their place, that sort of thing. Uh, But then the long-haired hippie freaks began showing up. And the trouble was what the hippie freaks could fiddle with the best of them. So the town turned over the junior high school and its grounds to the freaks. And the contest judges were put in an isolated room uh, where they could only hear the music. They couldn't see what the people looked like or what their names were. They just heard the fiddling. I mean, this was the voice before the voice was the voice, if you follow that show. As one old gentleman put it, Son, I don't care if you're stark naked and wear a bone in your nose. If you can fiddle, you're all right with me. It's the music we make that counts. Fulgham writes, so there I was, in the middle of the night, in the moonlight of Wiser, Idaho, with a, about a thousand other people who were picking and singing and fiddling together, some with bald heads, some with hair to their knees, some smoking a joint, some with long neck bottles of Budweiser, some with beads, some with Archie Bunker t-shirts. This was like late 70s, early 80s, remember? Uh, some 18, some 80, some with corsets, some with no bras, and the music rising like incense into the night to whatever gods of peace and goodwill there may be. And I was standing there, and this policeman, a real, honest-to-God, wiser policeman who's standing next to me, picking a banjo, says to me, sometimes the world seems like a mighty fine place, doesn't it? Well, welcome to the third week of a sermon series entitled, And a Little Child Shall Lead Them. We're looking at stories in the Bible that center around children and youth. Uh, Here at Palmdale United Methodist Church, we have been building the next generation for years. We genuinely value the place that children, youth, and young adults have in the life of the church. They're not just the church of the future. They are our present. Today, we examine a story from the Gospel of John that centers around quite a gathering. Not unlike the Grand National Old Time Fiddlers Contest in Wiser, Idaho, with tons of people from all walks of life gathered in a concert-like atmosphere, just with no music or fiddling, instead amazing teachings and healings by Jesus. Of all the miracle stories in the New Testament, there is only one that's recorded in all four Gospels, and that's the feeding of the 5,000. In fact, Two of the gospel writers, Matthew and Mark, tell the story twice. Once when Jesus feeds 5,000, another time when he feeds 4,000. 
John's gospel is always a little bit different from the other three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. John is the only one to mention a boy and his lunch. He's the one that saves the day. I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself. Let's start at the very beginning. John 6, verse 1. After this, Jesus went to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, also called the Sea of Tiberias. Now, here's a map of Israel in Jesus' day. The Sea of Galilee was up here in the northern part of the country, not too far from where Jesus grew up in the town of Nazareth. Well, John tells us the sea was also called the Sea of Tiberias, which would have had political overtones for anyone who would have heard it back in the day. The city of Tiberias was located on the southwest shore of that lake, It was founded by Herod Antipas sometime around 20 CE uh, as the new capital, his new capital, replacing Sephorus. It was named after the reigning emperor at that time. And Tiberias was a controversial city in that it was built over an ancient Jewish cemetery. That meant whoever lived there, including all of Herod, his court, his officials, they valued Hellenistic culture and the Roman Empire more than the Jewish tradition. Jesus never was reported as being in the town of Tiberias. He never even mentioned Tiberias in any of his teachings. So right from the start, an an astute reader or hearer would know that this story is going to have global overtones, political ramifications. Now, prior to our reading in chapter 6, Jesus had been in Capernaum, a town on the north shore of the sea. Verse 2. A large crowd kept following Jesus because they saw the signs that he was doing for the sick. Jesus went up the mountain and sat down there with his disciples. So Jesus is trying to get some one-on-one time with his disciples. They go up on a mountain. I'm sure uh, there's lots of things he wants to teach them and help them to learn what it means to be part of the kingdom of God. Uh, They go up on the mountain to kind of have a little retreat time, but the crowds keep following him. Everywhere he goes, the crowds follow him. Because, for one thing, he's an amazing teacher. But secondly, he prays over and heals so many that have all kinds of sicknesses and diseases. And even more than paparazzi, these followers are hungry for something that only Jesus can provide. Some of them don't even know what that is. They just know that they need what he has. Verse 4. Now, the Passover, the festival of the Jews... Was near. This is one of the little details that John uh, puts into the story that the other gospel writers do not. This was taking place near the time of Passover. Passover was that part of, uh, of Israel's history, that big festival where we remembered, they remembered God's saving acts in, in their life and in the, the life of their people. Back when the ancestors were captives in Egypt and they were living in bondage, Moses came and God called him to lead the people out of slavery. And it was that day where uh, the angel of death passed over the houses of the Hebrew people because they had placed some blood uh, from the lambs that they were eating that night on the doorposts. Uh, And even though many of the firstborn uh, children died that day, all of the Hebrew children were spared. And that day uh, led to, to the exodus that eventually led them into the promised land. And so for generations afterwards, they went back and they remembered that day that, that God passed over, uh, the angel of death passed over, and they, they remember how God saves them. Verse 5. When Jesus looked up and saw a large crowd coming towards him, he said to Philip, where are we to buy bread for these people to eat? Jesus said this to test Philip, for he knew himself what he was going to do. Now, Jesus, realizing that the the crowding masses of humanity continue to follow him, realizes it's getting close to mealtime, and he decides to ask Philip a question. 
Now, in the Gospel of John, Jesus rarely asks a question just to get information. Meaning there's always something going on below the surface to the question that Jesus is asking. Unfortunately, uh, Philip doesn't quite pick up on that, and he thinks Jesus is just asking a question for information. So now, John tells us readers that this is a test. But don't think of it in terms uh, of a test like a pass-fail test. This is a test that Jesus is trying to see if his disciples have learned who it is that they've been hanging out with all this time. And as we discover, the really, this is a question about limits and possibilities. And Philip is first up on Jesus' examination table. Verse 7. Philip answered Jesus, six months' wages would not buy enough bread for each of them to get just a little, right? He's still thinking on the surface level of the question. He whips out his calculator, crunches a few numbers, comes up with the bottom line. Even if we had 200 denarii, Jesus, it wouldn't be enough for everyone to get even the Costco-sized samples that they hand out. Now, 200 denarii was about six to eight months' wages uh, for a day laborer. It was quite a sum. Can you imagine giving up half of your annual paycheck for 5,000 people that you've never met before, right? Philip has calculated the bare minimum needed. It's obvious they don't have anywhere near that cash on hand. So he says quite plainly, uh, no offense, Jesus, but it just can't be done. It is impossible. And here's where we get to the part of the story with our hero, uh, the boy and his lunch. Verse 8. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to Jesus, well, There's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they among so many people? Philip may have been focused on what they don't have. We don't have the money to buy everything. Andrew at least takes a different approach. He looks around and sees what is it that we do have. And the best he can come up with is a young boy and his lunch. Five barley loaves and two fish. Now, scholars have debated as to exactly what it was that this boy had. Some say it was the lunch that his mom had packed him for the day. Others think, no, maybe he brought a little bit extra and he was going to have a little station on the side to sell to anyone who might not have brought for the day. We do know that barley loaves were the staples of the poorer class. Barley was cheaper than wheat. And the bread wasn't big, fluffy baguette loaves that you might pick up at Trader Joe's. You know, the kind that stick out of your bag as you're taking it home. No, they were flat loaves that were coarsely ground. Kind of like sandwich bread that was used to eat with the fish. And speaking of the fish, don't be thinking that it's these big, succulent rainbow trout or salmon fillets that the boy brought. No, they were probably salted down dried fish. Closer to sardines than what we think of when we think of someone having a lunch of fish. This was the food of the poor. The food of the poor. Nothing to get excited about. In fact, Andrew, at least we got to give him props for, for picking up, here's something that, that maybe Jesus could work with. But, but then uh, he quickly negates what little credit Jesus might have given him by saying, but I know it's insufficient. I mean, it's, it's not nearly enough. There's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they among so many people? Now again, Andrew and Philip are thinking in terms of limits. Jesus asked them a question uh, to see if they'd begin to consider the possibilities. And, and they may have even answered to him, you know, Jesus, thinking logically here, we just don't have the money or the resources to do what you're suggesting we do. But that wasn't the type of logic that Jesus works with. He was operating among the kingdom of God and the power of the Holy Spirit, and he's trying to get the disciples to think differently. He sees a young boy who's willing to part with his lunch for the good of others. Now notice, it's not the boy who's saying, well, I don't know if it's enough. 
Now, the disciples are questioning that. He just willingly gives his lunch to the Savior. I think it's a lesson that, that we can learn from our children all the time. They often don't get bogged down in the details like we adults do. They don't get tripped up in what is or isn't possible. The realities of life haven't beaten them down to where they no longer wish, dream, or imagine what could be. And so the boy willingly gives his lunch to the master. Verse 10. Jesus said, make the people sit down. Now there was a great deal of grass in the place, so they sat down, about 5,000 in all. Now, why have them sit down in the grass, we wonder? I mean, was, he, was he Jesus trying to make like, like a picnic thing and going to get little uh, blankets for everyone to sit on? Or maybe it was just really good grass. You know, the kind of grass where you like to take your shoes and socks off and just let uh, your feet sink in between the cool blades? Maybe it was that. Or was this just a way to kind of quiet the people down and get their attention? And then we have 5,000. Now, Don mentioned uh, 5,000 men. You see, back in the day, attendance fingers were always calculated in terms of men only. John says there were 5,000 men present. The odds are pretty good there were a few women and children that also had, uh, were a part of that group. Uh, unfortunately, uh, back in Jesus' day, women and children didn't count, like literally and figuratively. And we've progressed beyond there, thank goodness. But we have no way of knowing how many people were there because they were just counting from the men. So it could have been much more than 5,000. Second, that word that Jesus used uh, when he said to sit down, uh, is actually the word to recline. And that's also a re- loaded word because people would only recline at a great banquet. That, that was the, the, the posture that guests uh, assumed when they're at an amazingly fine meal. Jesus, steeped in the history and scripture of his Jewish tradition, would undoubtedly have known about another great banquet, one where reclining was mentioned, and that's In the book of Isaiah, chapter 25, that passage predicts the messianic banquet when God's king would come on earth once and for all and everyone would have enough to eat and to drink. No one would go hungry. There'll be no war, no violence or pain. And God's chosen one, the Messiah, would come and reign. Isaiah, verse 25. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine strained clear. He will swallow up death forever. Then the Lord God will wipe away the tears from all faces. It will be said on that day, Lo, this is our God. We have waited for him so that he might save us. This is the Lord for whom we have waited. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. And not only Jesus would have known this passage, but probably many of the people that were gathered that day also would have known that passage. They longed for the, the Messiah when God's period would come and everyone would be made right again. All the pains and struggles and hungers of this world would pass away. All would come to know the goodness of God. Could, could he be the one, they may be asking? Is this the man that, that, that Isaiah and so many of the other of the prophets have foretold? John 6, 11 and 12. Then Jesus took the loaves. And when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, also the fish, as much as they wanted. When they were satisfied, he told his disciples, gather up the fragments left over so that nothing may be lost. Today we celebrated the sacrament of Holy Communion. Another uh, incident where Jesus took bread, gave thanks, distributed to the people that were gathered in that room. It's, this story of the feeding of the 5,000 is a glimpse into Jesus' ultimate authority and power. You see, the problem in today's story is that Philip and Andrew were focused on the bread and the fish when they should have been focused on Jesus, the Savior of the world. 
But that happens to us all the time, doesn't it? We get caught up in a, a challenge, a struggle, something that's some drama that's happening in our lives or our community, and we focus on everything else except God, like what we have or what we don't have, what we need or, 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 or what else, what we, what we could get that would make things a lot easier. When all along, maybe the true test for each of us is are we looking to God first to help guide us through this process? Back to our story for today, this mountaintop group of reclining Hebrews, uh, Jesus gives them a banquet. It may not be exactly the rich food and well-aged wines that that Isaiah foretold, but it wasn't Costco-sized samples either. Like, he gave them enough to eat so that all of them were satisfied, way more than Philip was even able to envision. They ate and they ate until all of them had more than enough. And if that's not a glimpse of the kingdom of God, when no one goes hungry and everyone has what they need, I don't know what is. The crowd eats their fill, they, and then to drive home the point, Jesus says, well, are there any leftovers? And it turns out, yep, there just happened to be, oh, 12 leftovers. Each of you disciples gets a doggy bag to take home and remember this day, right? Just a reminder what is possible when you look to Jesus. Now, there's one more thing about Jesus' instructions to the disciples. Gather up the fragments left over so that nothing may be lost, he says. So that nothing may be lost or that no one may be lost. More than once, Jesus said his mission is to seek out and save the lost. And just a few verses later in John chapter 6, we find this. Everything that the Father gives me will come to me, and anyone who comes to me I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but to the will of the one who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Tony Campolo tells a story about a friend of his named Jim, who's a pastor, that served in a section of, a rundown section of the city where people were moving away or dying. No new people were moving in. He was only able to survive financially by earning money on the side. And for instance, he had an agreement with one of the local uh, mortuaries that if anyone came in and needed funeral services and they didn't have a church or a pastor, then he would come in and do the services. Well, one day, Jim was asked to conduct a funeral for a man who had died of AIDS. Now, none of the other ministers in the area would have done this. This was a couple decades ago. Partly because it was AIDS and partly because there was every indication that all the people who would be attending the funeral would have been homosexual. Now, I know that we have a different ethos in the country right now, but I think this story is just as powerful as it was 15 to 20 years ago. Jim says about 30 homosexual men showed up for the funeral, and he says, as I read scripture and prayed and spoke, they never once looked up at me. Their heads were bowed. They stared at the floor. They seemed to be afraid of making eye contact with me. I ended up speaking to the tops of their heads for the whole service. And when the service was over, they went out and they got in the assigned automobiles and they followed the hearse out to the cemetery. The guests stood on one side of the grave. Jim stood on the other as the casket was lowered down into the hole that will become the dead man's grave. And once again, Jim read a few more scripture passages and said a few prayers. And he says, as I spoke to these men, they stood like statues, each of them frozen in place. They had these dazed expressions in their eyes and seemed to be focused on nothing. They just stood there without nerve or sinew moving. He said the benediction and motioned for everyone to leave, but no one moved. So he said, is there anything else? that I could do for you men this morning? One of them said, yeah, 
They usually read the 23rd Psalm at these things. Could, could you read the 23rd Psalm? So he read the 23rd Psalm. And then another of the men said, there's something that Jesus said um, about the Spirit of God blowing and landing on anywhere or anyone that God wants to. Um, do you know where that is and could you read it? And so Jim turned to the third chapter of John and read to those men about the Spirit blowing where it will, like the sound of the wind, but we don't know where it comes from or where it's going. It's all under God's direction. And then one of them said, Pastor, there's a part of the Bible that I really, really like. It's about how nothing can separate us from the love of God. Do you you know where that part is? And of course, he read the eighth chapter of Romans. Neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, nor height or depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Tony says when his friend Jim was retelling this story, his heart started breaking. When he heard that those men were so hungry for the words of life, words that said, nothing can separate you from God. No matter what other people may say, he realized this, these men were hungering for God, but they would probably never step foot inside a church. They were convinced that church people despised them. And Tony says, do you know why they thought church people despised them? Because many church people do despise them. Why is it? Whether or not you agree or disagree with homosexual lifestyle, you have to disapprove of any church that fails to welcome and love people the way Jesus would. Here at Palmdale United Methodist Church, we are inspired by Jesus to love. The story surrounding a boy and his lunch isn't just a story about people who were hungry when it became mealtime. No, it's a reminder that people are hungering for so many things in this world, especially love and acceptance. And we may not have the financial resources to feed every hungry person up here in the Antelope Valley, but we do have the spiritual resources to let everyone who comes in contact with us know that they are loved by us and by God, genuinely and deeply. That's one of the reasons we observe the Sacrament of Holy Communion every month. That's, so when the service is over, we go out into the world and we live out what we just enacted together. And if the people at the Grand National Old Time Fiddlers Contest can welcome all who come that way to fiddle, then surely we as followers of the risen Savior can echo their sentiment, it's really the music that we make that counts. Friends, our music is love. May we never cease to spread that song wherever we find ourselves. All it takes is a few pieces, thin pieces of bread, some salted fish, maybe even a quesadilla, and Jesus. Thanks be to God for the witness of that little boy and his lunch. Amen.